Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network and New Books in History. Today, we're talking with Brandon Schechter, who's coming to us from Shanghai and talking about his new book. I'm Steven Siegel here in San Diego, and I'm your host. Uh, We'll be featuring Brandon Schechter today uh, for the New Books Network on New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies and New Books in Military History. So welcome, Brandon. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So Brandon's new book, which was just published with Cornell University Press and uh, its new series um, in military history called Battlegrounds, the book is called The Stuff of Soldiers, A History of the Red Army in World War II Through Objects, published by Cornell University Press in 2019. Brandon Schechter is currently a faculty fellow at NYU Shanghai. Uh, Before that, he served as the Elihu Rose Scholar in Modern Military History at at New York University and a postdoc fellow at the Davis Center at Harvard for Russian Eurasian Studies. Uh, Schechter has also taught at Columbia and Brown. He received his PhD in history from UC Berkeley in 2015 and a BA in Russian Studies from Vassar College. His research for the book, which we'll talk about today, The Stuff of Soldiers, was supported by a Fulbright IIE fellowship. A little bit about Brandon's interests and some other publications. He's published standalone articles about Stalinist property regimes, the integration of women into the Red Army, and propaganda specifically aimed at ethnic minorities in the Red Army. He has chapters in the edited volumes Hunger and War, published by Indiana University Press in 2015, edited by Wendy Goldman and Donald Filzer, Objects of War, Cornell University Press 2018, edited by Leor Auslander and Tara Zara, Uh, and the forthcoming book, I love this title, The Life Cycle of Russian Things from Fish Guts to Fabergé. 1600 to the Present, published by Bloomsbury, edited by Matt Romaniello, Allison K. Smith, and Tricia Starks. Uh, Brandon Schechter is a cultural historian with a particular interest in everyday life and material culture, and it's a great pleasure to have him here today. Um, So, Brandon, let me start with the the first question about this um, wonderful book published by Cornell. Um, You talk about the materiality of things. There, There are uh, there's a lot of, I guess, thingification of the soldier's experience. So how, how did you come to this topic originally? What what drove you and what drove your interest about it? Sure. Thanks. Um, so at, when I first entered graduate school, I thought I was going to be writing uh, a book about ethnic minorities in the Red Army. And everyday life was always going to be a part of that and kind of how this this group of people who do not necessarily fit in that well, acculturate themselves to the military. 
And then I kind of realized that I should probably learn about 15 languages to do that and that I'd have to be working in archives throughout the Soviet Union, which would be a lot of fun. Um, but my, my linguistic skills were, are not quite that strong. And as I began to learn Tatar to a level where I could read um, some of the memoir literature, soldiers' letters and such, uh, I wasn't finding a dramatic difference often. Um, there wasn't there wasn't like a distinctive non-Russian experience that I could find that would be similar to the kind of African-American experience in the Second World War, Japanese-American experience in the Second World War. Um, so I started to think about how to, how to grapple with this. And I began to realize that I was always very interested in the most base level things of these people's day-to-day existence, that I wanted to do something that made these people stand out as flesh and blood humans and, and emphasize that um, on the one hand, they're living through these epic events, but then on the other hand, they're also doing all of the same day-to-day stuff, eating, sleeping, whiling away free time um, in, a, in a situation where the stakes are much higher than everyone, than, than normal life. Um, but that, you know, they, the way to humanize these people, a way to um, make this, event that to my mind is of simply an incomprehensible scale. And I, I opened the book with the problem of the scale, this, the, the huge numbers involved, how to bring this down to a basic human level. Um, and, you know, because the, the Bolsheviks were materialists because they were very much into ruling by distribution of scarce resources uh, and because shortage was such a major issue throughout the Stalin era, and particularly during the war, objects took on an importance that they might not necessarily have in other regimes. So the the more that I hit the archives, and I hit the archives initially um, thinking about the first project, the more I found that without even necessarily looking for it, soldiers are constantly talking about stuff. They're constantly talking about food. They're often referencing objects that have become of particular value to them under the, the strange conditions of war. Um, so that, as that became more and more obvious, I, I just found myself also using this fairly standard sources. Um, there was a version of this project when I initially went into the to, to do my year of field research, which ended up being a year and a half, um, where I thought, you know, I'm going to go to I'm going to go to museums, and I'm going to find particular objects, and it's going to be very much the story of the war through this guy's shovel, or this woman's sniper rifle, or this person's spoon, and I ended up doing a little bit of that, but I found that there was so much discussion of stuff that dealing with objects simply generically dealing with the the shovel as something that so many different groups of people talk about as something that the regime talks about as something that soldiers talk about um dealing with the spoon in a similar way and so on down the line um i found that i was i was getting results that i was very happy with just just dealing with the kind of the standard uh, written sources rather than having it be kind of more of a museum studies very object in terms of individual objects with a provenance centered um, approach yeah I want to pick up on on several of those points i I'm struck by your mention of scale throughout the book 
because I, I think one of one of your brilliant strategies here is to get out of the world of master narratives and the accompanying mythology to the great patriotic war, even a war that has a beginning, supposedly, um, the insistence on, on June 22nd, 1941, but really going back to the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, you're getting readers out of that habit of thinking, as you put it, in subjective and objective master narrative terms to the level or in the scale of individual transformation. So I'm asking what's in your bag of tricks. How did you do that? How did you think about shifting the camera angle and, and then focusing on the objects, as you say, to get us out of that big narrative? Um, part of this was simply me wondering um, what did it look like on a day-to-day -day level? What did it smell like? What did it feel like on a day-to-day -day level? Part of it was really just asking a set of questions um, that were almost cinematic questions in that I really wanted to envision this event and you know, focusing on the objects that make it possible was, was, a, was a way of making this accessible that I think otherwise I would not have been able to do. I mean, I think you could do, I think there's a variety of approaches to humanize these people. There's a variety of approaches to bring this down to a more uh, human level. But I found that the nice thing about objects is that they were pretty much standardized among all sorts of different people, but they're also because of shortage, totally improvised. So you have this interesting situation where in theory, everybody has the same tunic, but everybody comes to identify with their particular object um, and, and view it much, much as their own view it, you know, it, it, it takes on their smell. It takes on, it, it fades in a certain way on their body. They earn metals that make it their own. Um, so, so part of this really was just thinking about how to, how to imagine this event, which again, I like, I still, the numbers still are just so, so enormous that I can't really, that they're, they're largely abstractions, but how do you, how do you, how does an individual human involved in that massive sea of what's going on experience it? Um, and once you break it down to a, to the human level, one of the issues you run into is that, um, you know, to get at an idea of what was standard, to get an idea of what is average, um, I don't know how you find the average of 34 and a half million people. Um, right. So I, I went very much for, okay, but they all have the same stuff. So I right. tried to triangulate with, you know, people who had experiences where they were where they ended up, you know, very happy with Soviet power at the end of their experience with people who were very unhappy with Soviet power or with people who seem to not really think in those terms and just think in terms of this is this big event that's happening. And I, and, you know, the politics of it, not, not necessarily being what's central to them and more just the survival, their family survival and, and navigating that, but usually also becoming as a result of the victory, much more inv invested 
um, in in the Soviet project, or or seeing or seeing that they have more in common with the Soviet project than they might have thought beforehand. Right, uh, and and let's let's talk a little bit about the Red Army in that respect. So, w- what is it that makes the Red Army? Different. I, you you say it several times that there's a, a modernizing project, maybe even a civilizing project, mm-hmm. um, when peasants um, or workers or others uh, who are non-Russians come um, and then join the Red Army. So there's a, there's a kind of centralizing effect. I don't know if modernity is the right word because you know there's been so much criticism of that mm-hmm. um, in the historiography and in the field i think of, of anna krilova's um, essays and, and her work um, and her criticism of stephen kotkin for example but I, I mean there is a project within the red army to make peasants into x or to make individuals into something so it, can you talk about that i mean is it is it happening at a quotidian level is it just abstract and I guess then how did you how did you go about your strategy for, for organizing that? Sure. Um, so you know, I I use I open the book with the discussion of of kind of how how you know modernity is not necessarily useful, but they're consciously trying to modernize as they see fit. They're consciously consciously trying to create a, a particular type of person. And one of the things that um, ended up being quite useful for understanding this um, is, you know, the massive amount of propaganda that they put out during the war and particularly things like manuals uh, because red army manuals in the thirties and forties include things like proper hygiene techniques um, include things, you know, like how exactly are you supposed to brush your teeth? Um, So there, you know, and you know, every military has how exactly you're supposed to stand so on and so forth. Um, But, you can you can see fairly clearly um, at multiple levels, whether it's at print propaganda or top level discussions throughout the war, that the the level of education, the level of acculturation to a particular Soviet way of doing things and a particular Soviet way of seeing the world is a constant problem um, that that they're dealing with, and it's a problem that doesn't go away because. Um, you have successive waves of people who make up the Red Army um, or who are being drafted in the Red Army in large numbers. You know, the peasants are always, the the peasants after collectivization are in theory fully Sovietized, but there's kind of an unspoken fact that many of them are deeply resentful about what collectivization did to them, you know, taking away many of their neighbors, taking away their property and autonomy. And this is not, voiced that much until they start drafting kulaks you know the formerly rich peasants um who have, so-called so, so-called, so-called formerly rich peasants right yeah who have been who who have their property taken away and are, and are often deported to you know some of the worst places to live in the soviet union um then there's they can give voice to this but it's it's often dismissed um as a kind of a well you were you were naughty kids and we punished you um but this is a the the, the idea of having to deal with as the Red Army goes west and starts drafting large numbers of people from territory that it annexed uh, only on the eve of the war. And the idea of like, these are not fully Soviet people. They don't necessarily understand what we're doing. And the army being the place that acculturates people very, very quickly. Right. Right. 
um, right. that this is the Soviet project where the stakes are much, much higher. The time frame is much, much shorter. Um, and, and that being a, a, a big part of this book and that being, and, and that being a big reason to look also again at the everyday life yeah. where, you know, if you were a decoralized peasant, if you were a Moldovan drafted in 1944 with virtually no understanding of Russian, um, if you are, you know, uh, an Uzbek, you are wearing the same uniform as, as a Muscovite Komsomolets you're using the same weapons, you're involved in the same general endeavor. And that was one of the things that, uh, that made this, this project particularly interesting to me is that it is this moment of, of universalization and this moment where um, if, there's, if, if you can condemn or have an ambiguous attitude towards much of what the Soviet Union accomplishes you know, in its 75 or so years of existence, the defeat of fascism is, you know, a, is certainly something that... Um, is was wasn't was an overall good right i i, I want to i want to return to some of these ideas um and i'm going to ask you another question ab- about the bodies because i think mm-hmm. that both um men and women in a kind of binary way but but the way that the bodies were clothed in a kind of unisex revolutionary army is extremely important. Um, for our listeners, I just want to read a passage about the statistics be- before we get to the human beings, the, the numbers that you provide, because the, nu- the numbers are staggering. Um, and for an American audience or, or maybe a British audience and a West European audience, you write uh, toward the beginning of the book, quote, The casualties suffered by the army, and this is the Red Army, in 1941 and 1942 were catastrophic. From June 22nd through December 31st, 1941, 3,137,673 were killed, missing, or captured. On top of this, over 5.6 million draft-age males were left behind enemy lines, and the last pre-war draft had only managed to reach 28% of those eligible for service. Between January 1st, 1942 and January 1st, 1943, this is staggering to me, 11,245,740 men and women were sent to the front, over 4 million of whom had recovered from wounds and returned to the ranks. By January 1st, 1943, so while Stalingrad goes on, the army, you write, had suffered 5,639,782 permanent losses, killed, missing, captured, sick, etc., and 7,543, down to the last number, four recoverable casualties. At the same time, 2 million men went undrafted on enemy territory, and there were 10,942 people in the ranks in the army. It was estimated that there were only 3.7 million men left to be drafted in the army. By the war's end, 11,273,026 were permanently lost and 34,476,700 had been drafted. On average, there were about 11 million persons in uniform every year. In the active army at the front, there was an average of 5,778,500 people in ranks during any month. The army at the front had gone through 488% of its average monthly strength from 1941 to 1945. And your last sentence is what gets me. In other words, it had been rebuilt five times. Can you talk about that? 
what does it mean to rebuild an army five times in four years with all all of these numbers? Yeah. Well, what it means, um, particularly in the case of the Soviet Union, which ends up fighting a war that it's expecting to fight on enemy territory, uh, but leads to it retreating deeply into its own territory and losing all sorts of resources very quickly. It means that they're constant, that at least for the first two years of the war, they have no time. And it means that the Red Army is a largely an army of amateurs after the army that had existed at the beginning of the war is more or less eviscerated. Um, you know, some survivors from that army will come and help rebuild the army and they'll be the people who have experience who share experience. But what this means is um, the official program of military training adopted by the Red Army in September of 1941 is one month long. Right. And often, you know, there's insufficient equipment for training. Um, sometimes that one month is even reduced. And the theory is, is that they'll, they'll get a month of basic training and then they'll be integrated into units that are on their way to the front and get more training, probably like another month or so. And that they'll have, this will mean that they'll have some level of proficiency in practice because of the often desperate situation um, in the summer of 1941, in the summer of 1942, in the spring of 19, well, in the spring, summer, and, and fall of 1942, um, they're just sending people who are barely trained to the front. Um, and modern warfare is very skill intensive and very labor intensive. This means that they suffer casualties at a massive rate um, that other armies are not are, are simply cannot sustain at this level because they don't have the manpower reserves. And our other armies that sustain anything like these losses collapse. Now they they do simply are trading lives for time, and they do eventually get much better at this. They do eventually have a significant cadre of people who have survived the first two years of the war by 1943, and they do put a lot more emphasis on training, actually have time to train in 1943. Um, but what this means is that even, even later in the war, the soldiers who are going into the front as replacements are dramatically less trained. Um, the, the statistic for the average U.S. Army soldier going into D-Day um, on December 6, 1944, they'd been in the army for at least a year. They were professionals. They, they had mastered a set of, of skills, including, you know, yeah. nonverbal communication and combat, how yeah. to use terrain, all these, all these things, not just how to use your weapon, but this very complicated choreographed use of violence that is modern warfare, how to coordinate between branches of service. The Red Army is notoriously bad at coordination between branches of service until the second half of the war, where they're essentially oftentimes tanks are working independently of artillery, working independently of infantry, and there's very little coordination. This changes, and the army gets much better uh, and is, is a, a fully you know, professionalized army by the, by the end of the war. Um, but this is, you know, part of the consequences, part, one of the reasons why they have to rebuild five times and one of the consequences of this constant rebuilding is yeah, this, this lack of professionalism um, as compared to most other forces. Were, were soldiers aware in all of the violence that they were experiencing, especially in the early stages of the war, 
that they were, as Stalin famously described them, the little cogs of history? I mean, how, how do you think that was in, internalized? Because, because there's a mechan- mechanization of the body when you're, when you're being trained and being disciplined and learning how to be a killing machine, right? But I mean, were, were they aware in, in your reading of the sources? And I know you read a lot of memoirs and, and, um, and letters, for this. So how, how, how did they understand their role in the army? So there's, there's a variety of ways that this is understood. Um, and this maps onto, I would say two major vectors this maps onto. One is what your position in the army is. Um, peasants are used to thinking of themselves as cogs in a machine that doesn't really care much about them. And peasants overwhelmingly go into the infantry, which is the branch of service that suffers the highest losses, the branch of service that has the least training, the most anonymous in terms of of their corporate identity. Um, So for many of them, this is just, there's a certain fatalism that has already kind of conditioned the way that they look at the world. Um, For soldiers in the more advanced branches, um, for the more technical branches that require some form of education, like, you know, artillery, um, to a certain extent tanks, because they require an education, but they suffer massive casualties, um, engineering, any sort of, any sort of specialization that requires, you know, lots of training and makes these guys more valuable as cadres, they'll often internalize this in a way where they understand that people in other branches, particularly the infantry, that these guys are cannon fodder, that they're the screws of history, um, but these guys kind of understand that they're part of this mechanism, but there's something that's not going to wear out quite as quickly as the screw. Mm-hmm. There's something that is a little bit more vital, a little bit more valuable, and will be treated with a little bit more care. Um, so that's, you know, within the, within the branch of service, of, within the military branch of service, has, it creates a certain corporate identity that, that speaks to how these guys position themselves that way and how these, these women position themselves in that way as well. Um, and then the other, the other thing of course is this maps very much onto someone's position, uh, vis-a-vis Soviet power. So I definitely have people who I, who understand that they're the cogs of history, understand that there's a very small chance that they're going to survive and accept that because they are believing communists and they view this in terms of only by sacrificing ourselves will we, one, be able to save our families because either we sacrifice ourselves or they are sacrificed to the enemy, and two, realize the potential of the revolution. Usually family comes first and revolution comes second, if at all, but there are those people who are, who are very much on board with the, with the project of the, of the party, um, as opposed to, and again, this, this, this is largely peasant but not just peasants, people who are much more critical of the Soviet project will tend to view this as, well, of course, this is, this is our system. Of course, we're the, we're the cogs of history. Of course, no one cares about us. Of course, they're going to sacrifice us because this is the regime that we've had. And, you know, I, I use, I utilize a couple of memoirs and diaries um, that are somewhat controversial in the Russian language sphere. Uh, and I try to balance those with people who they're controversial because they're, they're people who are clearly um, very critical of the Soviet project. And I try to balance that with people who are very clearly on board with the Soviet project, um, just to, to get a sense of, I'm, I'm really interested in the variety of, of responses rather than again, trying to figure out what the average of 34 and a half million people is. 
Sure, of course. And and I think it's easy to get caught up in the Russian scholarship with, with numbers. Um, you, if I may say so, you do a really good job of, of, of selecting out the numbers and then telling stories individually about how that sense of corporate pride and, and belonging was created. Um, I want to ask a question about clothing. So you have a, a great chapter about uniforms. How, how was the Red Army dressed and and what was practical and what was symbolically important yeah. about that the the uniform of the red army is a study in contrasts because basically universally people who are not from the soviet union who see the red army coming remark on how incredibly simple their clothing is how they kind of look like bums because they have basically these peasant looking tunics um on the one hand, you know, very, very simple clothing. On the other hand, they notice that in winter, they seem to be the best dressed and the most adequately dressed. But again, that they look, they're, they're, you know, compared to the Germans, these guys are not, these, these guys do not look like fashion plates on, <laughs> on the one hand, right? And that, right. <laughs> and that everything is really just militarized peasant gear. And people kind of pick up on that, right? That they're, they're uniforms, they're, they don't wear socks, they wear partianki, which are these strips of cloth they wrap around their feet. That they, they very much look like, you know, that the uniforms are not the thing that they're spending a lot of money on. That, that that's, not, that's not the thing that they're going for. However, yeah. on these threadbare, often threadbare, you know, very plain looking uniforms, everybody also notices they've never seen, particularly in the second half of the war, they've never seen so many medals, that these guys are wearing these peasant tunics with three, four, six, twelve medals. And this is one of the interesting paradoxes of of how the how the Red Army is looking at this. This is the almost everything that they do is totally utilitarian. Right? They don't spend a lot of money on uniforms, but and they don't put a lot of effort into into the uniforms, just make sure that people are, you know, more or less adequately clothed, but not stylish, not comfortable. It doesn't really matter if it's that particularly comfortable um weapons you know they put a lot of effort into weapons developing very very advanced weapons and then the one thing that they do that is is seemingly out of character is that they put a tremendous amount of effort both intellectual effort and material and spend a lot of a lot of material on creating medals, on creating all sorts of new medals in the course of the war. They come up with special medals that, that indicate people's skills. They come up with medals that indicate whether or not someone was present at a particular battle. And they edit that in a particular way. It's only, it's only battles that the Red Army wins, right? You, don't, <laughs> um, you, you do not get medals for, you know, battles that the Red yeah. Army loses, um, yeah, for the, it, for it, the most part, right? I mean, there, it, are, some, it, there are a few exceptions, but... It, it's, it's, almost, it's almost like jewelry. I think it, at one point yeah. you describe it as, as airsats jewelry. It's such a good description. I mean, what, you know, I have this image of still, because I, I'm a son of a Vietnam veteran and I'm here in San Diego with one of the military capitals. Mm-hmm. You know, I still have this image of American deserters or soldiers or anti-war activists or whatever hurling back their their medals, right? I mean, this is one of the classic images of protest in the Vietnam War, but there, there seems to be a different symbolic component here to the Red Army. And I'm just wondering 
um, why there's such an investment in these in the jewelry because there's a shortage of almost everything else. Mm-hmm. And and they're using. I mean, some of these metals are made of precious materials. Um, some of them are even made of platinum and diamonds. Only very very high ranking people can get those. Most of them are made out of brass, silver alloys. You know, things that could be up some some amount of gold, things that right. could, could easily be put to other purposes, sometimes even to military purposes. And they're they're doing this for a variety of reasons. Um, one is in a non in an unprofessional army. They are trying to motivate people to be heroes. So each of these medals um, comes with a monetary uh, inducement that you know that comes goes along with it. That could be you know anything from just simply additional pay to serious reductions in time till pension, uh, free round trip to anywhere in the Soviet Union. It, it all you know it's, it's an incredibly complicated system. Um, but the idea, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that these guys were, were fighting for medals, but the idea initially is to motivate people, both materially and morally. Every time one of these medals is adopted by the Soviet Union, the military press and the civilian press will run an article with a picture of the medal, with a description of the exact deeds you would have to do to get this medal, and will then periodically run inspirational stories about soldiers who received the medals and how they and how you should act like them and publish long long lists in pravda and in a variety of other other soviet periodicals of soldiers who were awarded medals at at particular battles eventually people come to see this as it's kind of shameful not to have medals so it, it goes from being the mark of being totally exceptional to this is kind of how you what, what how you should be pulling your weight, and I argue as well that this this becomes part of the language of appealing to the state. If you need to get your family who's who was evacuated from some city near the front or some occupied city back into their apartment after it's been liberated by the Red Army, if you need to get a cow for your family on the collective farm, you mention all the medals that you have. You mention that you're a veteran of certain battles and 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 were given uh, and were recognized by the state for your participation. So that's one ha- one half of this story. The other half of this story is this is also part of an appeal to traditional Russian imperial nationalism. Many of these medals are consciously modeled after Russian imperial medals, the most famous of which is the Order of Glory, which is a Soviet update of the St. George's Cross, which was considered to be the most illustrious medal you could get in the old regime because it was a combat medal. Um, a great they, they use the same color scheme. And this is part of a larger makeover of the army as the inheritor of everything that was good of the old regime. They eventually adopt the actual insignia of the old regime. And to my mind, the, the medals, the, the adoption of medals that begins uh, to a large extent in, the, in 1942 when things look really bleak is all part of this story of reforming, of, of basically reforming the past and 
rather than looking at the Soviet Union as it had famously constantly declared itself during the first five-year plan, during you know the, the Great Break, as the youngest country on earth, looking at the Soviet Union as an inheritor of the glories of Tsarist Russia. Um, right. and, that this, and the uniforms are, I think, the clearest, the uniforms, both the uniforms themselves and the medals, I think, are the clearest physical indicators of this um, that I could find, and certainly in the book. Um, yeah, it's it's a great it's a great fascinating chapter, and I think explains very well the transformation out of the imperial experience and then back to the exp- imperial experience. So, I I'm, I'm, I was really I found that really compelling. Um, I want to ask a, a question about gender and violence because I, you know I came to the subject not as a military historian but as someone who who read Amir Viner and Anna Krilova. And I, I remember Anna Krilova describing in her book, The Partners in Violence, and, and you talk a little bit about this. Um, the middle of your book is all about violence, part two of your book. So I, what I wanted to ask is how you understand violence in the Red Army, um, both in a gendered sort of way, because there are both men and women at the killing front, and in other ways, you, you do have parts in the book uh, in which you talk about sexual harassment and, and other issues that are, I think are being written about now and researched very well um, among military historians. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. And, um, you yeah. uh, Krilova's Partners in Violence had a tremendous impact um, on how I, how I frame this because that came out right, as, right before I started doing my field research. Um, so this idea of of the kind of of the partnership of man and machine as part of modern killing, um, I found I found very compelling, very interesting. So um, to I'll, I'll talk a little bit just about violence more generally, and then I'll then I'll deal with the, the aspect of gendered violence. Um, I wanted this to be a book about war that did not shy away from the fact that war is organized killing. Um, I wanted to put the violence very, very front and center, not in a kind of pornographic thrill seeking way, but in a, we should not forget that that's what the, that, that this is what this was about. This was about the destruction of human beings. And this was about, um, people trying to defend themselves while killing other people. Um, so, uh, I, 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 as, as I was thinking about this, so, you know, with, a, with this object centered approach, one of the things that happened that that was, um, in some ways, some ways still bothers me because it's kind of disturbing how this particular military way of looking at things even even kind of seeped into my text, where it's like, oh, weapons just became tools, mm-hmm. and the chapter about weapons is a chapter about, well, these are the tools you have to kill people, and these are the different ways you use them, and these are the different ways that this turns you into a person who who uses this particular type of violence. Did, um, I'm sorry. Did did you sort of find yourself as you were writing routinizing this? I, I mean, nor, maybe normalizing is the wrong word, but there's a habituation that takes place even as you're researching, right? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, and you know, I should say, uh, you know, I have a chapter about food, and that chapter is largely was largely reading descriptions of people who were just chronically underfed for three or four years. I gained about 10 pounds when I read that chapter because I was just constantly hungry reading these descriptions of hunger. Um, 
So, so to go back to violence. Yeah. Um, and, and gendered violence. I think it's and, a really important question. Yeah. That. Yeah. And, and so one of the things that I was, I was thinking about as well is this, this question of in the modern battlefield in an army that spends the first two years of the war completely undersupplied with the high-tech machinery that makes this battlefield so terrifying, right? Their lack of planes, lack of tanks um, for the first two years. Suddenly labor becomes the way that you survive. And that's true of all armies, but this is particularly true of the Red Army because they have the human resources, but they don't necessarily have the technological resources in 1941-42 as things are falling apart. So emphasizing the ways in which labor and constant labor becomes part of this. And then they start building these Soviet cities. Their, their trenches start to look like Soviet, it start to be modeled after a Soviet production space. And they view violence in this very Soviet way of production norms, where instead of producing X number of tons of steel, you're producing X amount of dead soldiers. Now, commanders in this situation end up being a lot like Soviet managers, where as long as they're producing the results that they are supposed to produce, all sorts of things are are also they the their their commanders their leaders are casting a blind eye on all sorts of things, and this is a situation where you have lots where you have men and women serving together. So what happens? And I do not think that this is I don't think that this particular aspect is something uniquely Soviet. I think that this is just what often happens when you have a massive power imbalance. You have commanders who view all of their subordinates as having to absolutely do anything that they say that, that essentially discipline in the red army should be the highest as uh, the highest because it's a revolutionary army that refusing an officer's commander is refusing a command of the state and therefore it can be harshly punished. So some commanders come to see access to the bodies of their female subordinates as part of their their purview as commanders and you know there are cases of this in the united states army you know currently there in the, there's been you know in the last 20 years a series of scandals that show that this is probably has more to do with power differentials than with a particular soviet thing but what is particularly soviet about this story is that there are just huge numbers of women and they go into combat roles so the presence of the, the, the simple presence of large numbers of women at the front is significantly different. And they are explicitly, unlike other armies at the time, they are explicitly serving in combat roles, right? The British do not allow women to pull the trigger in anti-aircraft batteries in World War II. The, the Germans specifically try to keep women away from the direct front because that is deeply challenging to their ideas of gender. For the Red Army, again, this is just another form of work. Women have already been integrated into the workforce. Individual soldiers may have an objection to this, but it is not a difficult sell to bring women into the army in this crisis situation. Right. I, and I'm thinking about the end of the war as well. So, you know, Mark Adela has research on rapes in the Red Army, and you mentioned this um, in your work. So, you know, I, I mean, what are, in your estimation, are, are the reasons why Red Army soldiers ultimately are not punished? I, I mean, is this just another way at the end of the war for Stalin and the government to assert some form of dominance? And would that include sexual dominance? And 
what what is your reading of this based on based on your sources discussing so, violence? Sure. Um, so I I read this as part of a whole of asserting dominance over the Third Reich, and one of the things that I, that that I think is very important, and I've gotten some pushback on this by by some people whose work I respect quite a bit, um, is I think that you cannot think of the the explosion of sexual violence at the end of the war as something separate from the state inviting soldiers to take trophies at the end of the war. So at the very end of the war, the state, without explicitly saying you can loot, sets up this massive postal, postal infrastructure and says you can send home parcels of X amount of weight once a month free to the Soviet Union. And the weight is dependent on rank. And actually, it's free for soldiers, and then officers have to pay X amount per, per kilogram. Um, but that this is a clear symbol, a clear signal, that things are going to be different in the Third Reich. And that historically, in the Soviet Union, when you can take people's property away, they've essentially stopped being people. If we think about the times in, in the past in, in Soviet history, 1918, looting the looters, this is all. This is happening around the same time as the Red Terror. This is the idea that it, the people who you can expropriate, these are the former exploiters. These are the people who have no place in the society. If we look at decolonization, similar thing, where the people who can be expropriated are often being exiled, sometimes being executed, and you know, from what I've understood, recent research shows that there were probably was quite amount of sexual violence involved with this as well. So the state basically is saying that these people are not a legal category anymore and there will not be consequences for what you do to them. And the state does not punish sexual violence until after the war in any significant way in the territory of the Third Reich. In the territory of the Soviet Union, they do punish. In the territory of uh, allied states, they do punish to a certain extent, although again, not to, you know, not necessarily to the standard that that many people would like, and I would also you know point out that there is there's some very good recent work on relations between USGIs and French civilians that show that this is, this does seem to be a structural thing with power imbalance with having one population that has weapons and another that does not, um, and also having men who have basically had most of their rights taken away from them. And have been forced to live in this very, uh, under very harsh conditions, suddenly being told this is a sphere where you can unleash all of that pent up frustration that you have and take it out on women. Um, right. Yeah. I, I, and I think the process of transformation that you're describing is, is a never ending process because once this sort of position of dominance is insisted upon, it's, it's somehow not reversed. Um, and so I, to this end, I wanted to read a passage, I think a very interesting one, and then ask you about your big takeaway points on this project of Sovietization and transformation in, in terms of things and scale. So you write toward the end of the book, the war transformed people. A Leningrad confectioner passed through the hell of the Nevsky bridgehead. A Tatar poet went from the gulag to command a mortar platoon dying from wounds in East Prussia. A 40-year-old Russian peasant who made Valenki for a living became a machine gunner. One Jewish student became an artillery observer, another a machine gunner. 
the young Muscovite grandson of an Imperial Army general lost an eye as a tanker. A disgraced NKVD officer was released from prison to fight, crippled, but never deemed worthy of rehabilitation or a pension. The son of an Armenian and a Georgian who had been repressed in the Great Terror defended the state that had destroyed his family. Russian teenage girls became snipers. The son of a dekulakized Kazakh herdsman led troops into Berlin, helping to raise the Red Banner over the Reichstag. A young Jewish paratrooper turned sculptor would both get in a shouting match with Nikita Khrushchev and design the premier's tomb. I see this almost like an alpha and omega to your book. This is this is like the great voiceover for a documentary. Um, so what what is the the lesson here? I mean, what are the big takeaways of this um, great project and transformation? Well, this is this, it, I always stumble on this a little bit because this book was in some ways purposely designed that you could take any chapter from it and kind of get a full story, but also that if you read the whole thing together, that you get you know a much much richer story. Um, and I mean, to me, what I was, what I, what I was trying to do with this project is write the story of the transformation of the war in a way that shows how it was a universal experience, but one that people took different lessons away from that. It was so pervasive and so many different types of people went through it that on the one hand, it's very difficult to draw some sort of overarching conclusion, but then on the other hand, all of these guys saw the same, all these men and women saw the same destroyed villages. They saw this, if they lived long enough, they saw and or participated in the looting of the Third Reich. They saw what horrible things weapons could do to human bodies. They experienced similar hunger. And that ultimately what this does is creates a moment where the interests of the Soviet people and the Soviet government overlap more than they ever had before for a larger group of people at least and arguably than they ever would later they needed each other to survive this moment and this is how they survived and i talk a little bit about the implications of what that means for the rest of the soviet period without trying to you know without trying to make it a book about what this meant afterwards i'm really much more concerned about what is this experience how did people experience it? And just trying to provide a kind of a, a book that people can go to and say, if they just want to understand. So what did, what, what was it like to go through this war? I tried to capture that as much as possible and with as a broad a swath of people as possible. Yeah. And you seem to be still interested in things. So um, the alien world of goods, right. As you describe it. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk about your current research and, what, what does material culture have to do with it? We're, we're moving from a world of scarcity to a world of abundance. And um, what, why are you still interested in it? And what do you, what do you hope to write about? So um, my next monograph length project that I'm working on right now, um, that it's, it's an idea that I've been researching for a while and I still have, still have some archival work to do, but I'm, I'm starting to actually, um, sketch together some of the some of the early chapters is um, it's tentatively titled "The Search for Salvation in the Second World War," uh, and it is a comparative project comparing chaplains in the U.S. Army 
and political workers in the Red Army during the Second World War. So I'm basically looking at how these two regimes use these specialists to try and create meaning, to try and frame the war, to try and keep soldiers moral, to make up for the fact that these soldiers have been ripped from their home communities and give them kind of a sense of community and a sense of meaning. And, you know, of course, one of the punchlines of this project is that these two powers emerge from the Second World War as the two powers that will that will frame the Cold War, and that the religious framing becomes incredibly important for at least the early Cold War, if not for the duration of the Cold War in the U.S. case, and that an idea of the party having proven itself to the Soviet people emerging from the Second World War, and lots of people having interacted with the political apparatus of the army, um, and the and that that having framed the war, there is a chapter that will be about material culture in this. And it will be emphasizing the richness of the material culture of chaplains because every chaplain in the U.S. Army gets a Jeep and a trailer because they have, they're hauling around a portable organ. Um, whatever wow. objects that they really? need. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's a portable <laughs> organ. Whatever objects that they need to fulfill the rituals of their faith, so they have you know a communion service or or a talit or or what have you, depending on the faith, Torah scrolls, whatever, um, and they have an, a chaplain's assistant who is also their organist and who is also their bodyguard because they're non-combatants, and they're just famous for having huge amounts of stuff, whether it be wine or communion wafers, or basically the army publishes a special service edition Bible that every other soldier has by the end of the war. They've produced it in such large numbers um, and are just famous for just having stuff to give out to soldiers, uh, religious items, so on and so forth. Versus the Red Army, in which political officers also have things to distribute, but the political apparatus is much, much larger and they just have a lot less stuff. They're producing some of their own propaganda, and they're all supposed to be um, creating libraries of, of stuff to give to soldiers, of, of reading materials to either read aloud or give to soldiers. Uh, but, you know, that is, that is a material component. And, of course, a, big, a huge difference in the material culture of chaplains and political workers are chaplains are non-combatants. They don't carry weapons. Political workers carry weapons, and they're supposed to be the best soldiers. They're supposed to be examples. Um, and there's also certain, you know, uniform goods, but I'm not, I won't bother you that. Um, but yeah, so basically the, the, the project also is very much focused on everyday life is focused. I, I, I will talk a little bit about the, um, the institutions and the, the framing from above, but a lot of this is about how this worked on a day-to-day level is about what were the what were the day-to-day interactions what were the rituals when the US army uncovers a site of atrocity or dedicates a graveyard of its soldiers versus how does the red army deal with this um what sounds are, fasc- yeah. sounds fascinating yeah um i i mean i really enjoyed talking with you brandon um and i'm so happy to read this book out with a new series for Cornell University Press. Um, We've been talking with Brandon Schechter from Shanghai. His book is called The Stuff of Soldiers. 
Uh, this is a book called The Stuff of Soldiers. We've been talking about stuff, a history of the Red Army in World War II through objects published by Cornell University Press in 2019. Uh, I'm Steven Siegel, your host here on the New Books Network and New Books in History, New Books in Russian-Eurasian Studies, and New Books in Military History. Thank you, Brandon, for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.